0: Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we're going to talk about my current favorite Brothers' War draft archetype, uh, what I'm calling Stalwart Green. This is a three-plus color green deck, kind of of green-splashing-the-rest-a-lot-of-the-time green deck that uh, relies on Sentinel Stalwart, uh, among other fixing, to make its mana work. As always, the notes are available for this podcast, at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes if you wanna follow along. This set for me has uh, a lot in common with Kaldheim. Sorry for a little aside for people who didn't draft Kaldheim, but in both formats, uh, Red White was kind of the aggregate best performing deck that a lot of people saw as like setting the benchmark uh, for the format, especially in terms of speed. In both formats, it was a pretty aggressive deck. Uh, In both formats, blue-black was pretty bad. Blue-green wasn't really a thing. And in both formats, I really liked the green cards. So there are some more specific parallels in the green cards. Sentinel Stalwart, of course, is extremely similar to Juspera Sentinel. Boulder Branch Golem is very similar to Ravenous Lindworm. And Argothian Opportunist is not quite Saralf's packmate, But it fills a similar role. Uh, It's kind of like a middle of the game three power blocker that gets you card advantage ish in Argathian Opportunist's case. It's, you know, just this mana rock, but uh, it's still pretty valuable. I actually think uh, there are more, like green is deeper in this format in terms of cards that I want in this kind of deck than Kaldheim was, which is nice. According to 17 lands, Sentinel Stalwart is not particularly good, unlike just Barrow Sentinel. Sentinel actually had good stats, like it won a lot and was underrated in general. So it was taken late, even though it had a high win rate. Uh, Sentinel Stalwart has a low win rate and is taken late, which I think is because people don't play Sentinel Stalwart correctly. I'm pretty confident about that. But has the side benefit that it might let Sentinel Stalwart go late uh, a little bit longer. Let me keep getting uh, this deck. My hope here is to let other people know how to use it so that uh, maybe you can get Stalwart's win rate a little bit less embarrassing and, you know, you can take advantage of these late Stalwarts. This deck, the reason I talk about the Kaldheim comparison is this deck and how I think about it definitely has roots from what I learned drafting Kaldheim. And one of the things that's going on in this format that makes it analogous to Kaldheim for me is the uh, mana of any color from Stalwart like Sentinel really valuable because it lets you splash very strong gold on commons but also kind of more importantly and uniquely or unusually to specifically to both formats both formats have the ability to profitably spend a color of mana that you don't consistently have access to in the early game in the late game to do something valuable in kaldheim's case it was activating the uncommon lands that can sacrifice to do something. And in this set, it's unearthing artifacts that you can play for colorless mana and then unearth later for value. And so when you have a core of five color enablers like Sentinel Stalwarts and energy refractors, you can just take any of the unearth creatures and then play them as decent creatures up front, and then have extra value off of them later. The deeper you go on this unearth synergy, the more value you get out of your Blanchwood Prowlers, which is the 1-1 one, one for one and a green that mills three, and you can put a land from among them into your hand, or give it a plus one, plus one counter, which is something that this deck is really interested in anyway, because it helps you find your missing colors of mana, and it's a cheap 1-1 one, one body to tap with Stalwart for mana. So it's really like doing kind of like triple duty in terms of synergies here, in terms of finding your mana, giving you an object to uh, tap with the stalwart, and filling your graveyard for your unearthed stuff. Uh, Sometimes it's going even further than that, filling your graveyard for other graveyard matter stuff that may or may not end up being something you care about with various cards that get things out of your graveyard. When I mentioned green being kind of deeper on cards that are good for this archetype than Kaldheim, Blanchwood Prowler is kind of the forefront of that in terms of being the next like really key uh, component to this deck. Big picture, fundamental pick order, like what you're prioritizing broadly. Bombs first, really any bomb, doesn't matter what color it is. Like if it costs two colored mana symbols that both are not green, it might be a little bit tricky to cast, but if it's strong enough, you should take it anyway and make it happen. Sometimes you'll have to let it go. Bombs, fixing, the next most important thing after bombs is fixing ahead of all the other stuff. So like if there's not a bomb and there's a stalwart in the pack or an energy refactor, I'm probably going to take that over everything that's not a legitimate bomb. Premium removal, different decks, different formats, I personally value removal differently. Sometimes I like to take, you know, premium aggressive two drops or something over premium removal. In this deck, I'm generally looking to play like pretty long grindy interactive games and so i think the uh premium removal ends up as a priority then unearth cards and value creatures so that would be you know uh the unearth stuff like the various scrap work things and then also stuff like argothian opportunist and boulder golem creatures that you know do something that you care about in addition to just being a body then cheap creatures you know when in doubt just take some random creature that you can play pretty early that'll stop you from falling behind and can make sure that you have something to get to let you tap your stalwart that's all very loose uh can change a lot from deck to deck but that's you know broadly what you should be thinking about having so general rules to make your mana work prioritize fixing when in doubt take a colorless card over a green card over a card of another color avoid cards that cost two mana of the same color unless it's green bail is fine and uh be very very careful about double splashes uh for example junkyard genius is a really really strong card it's fine to play junkyard genius if your kind of secondary color is either black or red if you're like mostly green white it can be pretty tricky to cast junk junkyard genius, you would only want to try to do that if you were uh, particularly good at uh, having mana fixing. Sometimes you want to cut hard to cast double colored cards, sometimes it'll be okay to play them. It's really a function of like how good your mana is. Try to have a secondary color, kind of, but it's really not that important. Top commons that I'm looking for. Stalwart, opportunist, of course. This is loosely in order. A stalwart opportunist excavation explosion but i think if you know that it red is uh like a priority or a color that you're going to have access to regularly then you should explosion over opportunist and if your mana is like these are often like very very early cards in the pack to see so you could take them over a stalwart to try to get them back but i do think stalwart is more important for your deck than an explosion most of the time then overwhelming remorse then evolving wilds then Scrap Mutt, then Energy Refractor, Blanchwood Prowler, Combat Courier, Scrapwork Cohort, Boulder Branch Golem. Those are kind of the like important ones. Next up, Solid Commons, Epic Confrontation, Prison Sentence, so kind of the lower tier removal, Gaia's Gift, Might Stones, Animation is kind of the top blue common that you'd want to splash here, Emergency Weld, Stern Lesson, Moment of Defiance, Argothian Sprites, warlord's elite disenchant some more like filler type cards that are in line with what you're trying to do like it's a deck that uses warlord's elite well because you're really prioritizing having cheap permanents that let you cast it on turn three or four but really just trying to use it to like not get run over so uh it's you know it's a fine card to play but nothing special noteworthy uncommons this is not like the best uncommons just uncommons that i think are per- are like i have something relevant to say about their kind con- their like play in this deck specifically uh research desk and mask jade crafter are both particularly good here they are cheap artifacts that you can tap with stalwarts to get mana out of them uh the deck despite playing very few lands most of the time which i'll get to makes a lot of mana because you're prioritizing uh, these mana creatures and making power stones and stuff. And so th- and you're just looking for card advantage everywhere because you're playing a grindy game. So research staff, masculine j- jade crafter are both generally good, but exceptional here. Also, anything that has like artifact, like artifact fall synergy type stuff like Yoshi Distant is incredible here because you're generally prioritizing artifacts, things that make artifact tokens on our stuff, you're getting a lot of artifact fall with this deck. The steel crafter is uh, one of the best uncommons you can have. Uh, also incident, of course. So the big question which everyone kind of struggles with and asks about here is how many lands should you play? A lot of people like a shortcut framing this as how many lands are various cards worth or what fraction land is a card worth like if you have a shortcut that is well start with 17 land and then for every x one and two mana cantrips cut a land for every y stalwarts cut a land for every so many prowlers cut a land the problem is this deck kind of wants as much of that stuff as it can get for the most part and you can't linearly cut lands for these things. There's certainly a floor on the lands that you want. Like every additional land you cut is harder to cut than the previous one. And I don't have some kind of like complex regression about like, I, I, I don't have like a formula to enter there. What you're looking for is to look at your cards that are hardest to cast and make sure that you can cast them. Uh... <laughs> Hardest does not mean most expensive, especially in this format. A card that costs one mana that you want to play on turn one is hard in a very different way than a card that costs seven colors that you want to play sometime between turn five and turn seven, which is hard in a different way than a card that costs, say, double black. So you want to think about, like, on the turn that I'm trying to cast this card. Will I be able to, and can I change my mana base so that I can? So, in general, you're trying to play one mana green cards, uh, like Stalwart and potentially Bushwhack, on turn one. I generally draft this deck in such a way that I want to make sure that I have nine lands that give me green mana. So that's forests, green pain lands. And evolving wilds. I think you can basically cut forces one to one if you have evolving wilds. But I want to make sure I have nine. If your mana's kind of stretched, you could, in a pinch, count a uh, chromatic star or maybe like a star and a refractor or something as a green. Maybe go down to eight lands to tap for green, especially if a lot of your fixings colorless rather than like stalwarts and blanchwood prowlers but try to have nine lands that tap for green and then a lot of the time the rest of my mana is just well i have some evolving wilds and so i need one basic of each of my other colors for the evolving wilds to find then if there's a thing that i need a second land of that color like a second black because i have something that costs black black then maybe another swamp for that and then maybe i'm maybe that's just how many lands i want to play uh whatever number that ends up you know maybe it's 14 maybe it's 15 maybe it's 13 but uh the point is get all the lands that i need in the deck so like in general we think of decks as needing like 17 lands to be able to cast their spells but the extra lands don't make it easier to cast your like early green cards and basically like if you can get to three mana then you can kind of implicitly get beyond that with power stones. And then if you can get to two mana and you have, you know, uh, refractors and uh, prowlers, you get to three, um, you just don't need very many lands to like get to the point where your spells are functioning as mana sources. So I guess another thing that you can do is just how many cards do you have that contribute toward casting your stuff? And it's often a lot. Like you'll often have... 20 plus lands that you know contribute toward casting things once you're counting power stones this is all kind of nebulous i don't have a precise answer you can shortcut it to play 15 if you're low on mana sources play 14 if you're high on mana sources and it'll probably be okay uh relatively relative low and high to where this is at where this normally is so if you have like three stalwarts and prowlers play 15. If you have more than that, play 14, and it'll probably roughly work out. Next thing I want to comment on is this deck's strength is very much its flexibility. Um, You can really play any cards, so any open lane you can kind of just add to your deck. Um, It pivots very smoothly. That means that often you end up with a deck that is this green base spliced with some other archetype. And that might be soldiers. It might be like prowess trigger stuff. It might be graveyard synergies. It might be like battery bearers and big prototype stuff. It might be like going hard on artifact fall with uh dissident. There's a lot of different, like all of the decks that exist were all of the not very aggressive decks and arguably some of them that exist in the format can be spliced into this deck, and then the way that you should think about your deck is kind of apply all of the rules and principles from this deck and the rules and principles from that deck into one deck, and it works pretty smoothly, because the core conceit of this deck is basically just a mana base, and then you know you would like to have synergies you have good ability to outspend your opponent on mana you're like accelerating basically stuff to spend your mana on because you have more mana even though you have fewer lands and so you play all this like value stuff and card draw. well not card draw exactly card advantage that's that's what's going on this is like very much hybridizable i guess also a lot of the signpost uncommons like all of the two color gold cards a lot pair particularly well together like third path iconoclast happens to be great with a very wide range of other uncons that it usually doesn't get to play with right because third path iconoclast makes artifact soldiers which means that it's good with yoshin dissident because it's making artifacts to give you extra triggers to put counters on something it's good with junkyard genius because it's going wide and giving you artifacts it's good battery there because it's making a bunch of creatures that can tap for mana. It's good with Yoshian Tactician because it's making a bunch of soldiers that Yoshian Tactician pumps. So when you can play lots of colors, like it's not hard to play four different colors of cards, you can end up with these like weird synergies that other decks don't have access to. So like looking for those and building them into your deck. Like the fact that you can do that is one of the strengths of this archetype and knowing to look for that and when to find it and how to get it into your deck is kind of one of the skills that you want to prioritize with this deck. You can also use some really niche value uncommons that generally aren't that strong, but you can make good use of in some versions of this deck, like Symmetry Matrix and Transmogrant Altar. Symmetry Matrix, because you have, you know, between like Stalwarts and then uh, if you have Combat Couriers or Scrapwork cohorts. You have these unearth things that are giving you extra one ones. ones um, It's generally like, pretty easy to trigger it, and you have a bunch of extra mana lying around from the pressure that you're prioritizing and stuff. Uh, so I've had Symmetry Matrix out well, and then Transmogrant Altar. Again, if you just have a lot of unearth and these really like, random one from your prowlers and stuff, you can put a Clay Revenant in your deck and have a nice little engine. Also, Helling Mine and Key to the City are both great. Just stalwarts Stalwart in your deck, and they're both really good to be able to tap um, with Stalwart. So there are a bunch of, like, kind of niche weird cards that this archetype uses that a lot of other decks can't. And then you also get combos that other decks would like to have but the mana doesn't support. So there's a lot of value just around the table in terms of cards that are strong other people don't have a way to use that you get to take advantage of uh because your deck is so flexible which is kind of why i end up drafting this archetype recently like more than half the time i'll take stalwarts and refractors you know anytime that i see them and can reasonably pivot here because whatever cards i had before that i can kind of seamlessly slot into this deck so like before recording this i did a draft where i first picked Gix, uh, the Mythic 3-3, and then second picked excavation Explosion, and then third picked Cure of the Dunes. and So I had three different colors, and I knew that I wanted to be ideally base black, and then I just ended up getting past a stalwart, and I was like, well, let's see, you know, there wasn't anything great for, like, the black deck there, so I was like, okay, well, let's see where this goes, take that, And then I ended up being able to play all of those cards, uh, cast them very consistently, because I ended up finding more stalwarts and a lot of Evolving Wilds in the draft. So it's, it's good to just kind of know to look for it as a way to pivot and then not have to give up anything that you were doing. And it's not that I was forcing it. It's not that I planned. Like It's not that I was taking green cards in anticipation of finding stalwarts or anything. It was just that there was a stalwart that I took to you the option and I pivoted smoothly into the deck which is how I would often try to go with it. To comment briefly on gameplay, you're generally getting onto the board very quickly because you're prioritizing cheap cards. Uh, this can hypothetically let you pressure slower decks but for the most part like your things don't have a lot of power so mostly you're just trying to gum up the board to not fall behind against aggressive decks and then you're planning to play long grindy games against basically everyone, Uh, I end a lot of my games with around 10 cards in my deck, you know, like 8 to 12 cards in my deck. That's why it's important to have some removal. You're going to get to see a lot of cards. Your opponent's going to get to cast a lot of their cards. There are a lot of bombs that you're going to have to be able to answer. You don't need that much removal. Like three to five pieces of removal should be very comfortable. Um, You can also, you know, this is a deck that can use Goblin Firebomb reasonably. And if you're a little low on removal and you have firebomb, you can play emergency weld to be able to get back your firebomb, so that you have kind of access to another removal spell uh, if you're low there. So there are a lot of you know weird little things like that to look for. Uh, again, it's a very customizable deck. Hopefully, that gives you the tools to approach this. So that's kind of my intro here. I'm gonna turn it over chat for questions i i know there were some of those uh already again if you've asked anything that i haven't answered and uh you're still curious about it please ask again while i'm letting people cover that i want to thank my newest patrons at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes scott and cuddy thank you very much for the support if anyone else is digging what you're hearing here and interested in supporting uh the podcast again check out patreon.com comma slash drafting archetypes to do that or to see if uh there are any you know rewards there that entice you all right so questions how many stalwarts is too many stalwarts Uh, i've never met too many stalwarts i'm really really happy like the first three are like i urgently want them the fourth is good i don't think i would turn down the fifth or sixth at seven, it gets a little bit easy, but I've never really had the opportunity to have anywhere near that many. But I mean, at a certain point, I'm happy to just like, all right, my mana base is, you know, forests and stalwarts and we'll make it happen. But it, it's it's never gone quite that far. Is it worth it to force this archetype? If yes, how would do that. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't force it because you can just kind of draft normally, like start by taking good cards. But keep this in mind as something to pivot into. The way that forcing this works is you start by taking, you know, like bombs and removal. It's really just have fixing as a priority. Like early in a draft, take Evolving Wilds and take Energy or Factor to give you optionality regardless of what you're drafting. And then the fact that you have that fixing will let you pivot into this by taking sorts when you see them later. Then, you know, if it happens to be open, you end up moving to a green base and splashing the powerful cards that you already have. And if it isn't, you just keep drafting the powerful cards that you had. And maybe you have an energy or instead of like some other creature or something. So I think that you can draft in a way that's very open to this deck without actually forcing it. Like you won't always be in this, Type, you won't always try to be in this and feel like you had to like give something up to pivot away from it. Uh, it's more just if you're open to it, you can fall into it pretty easily. For fixing, how do you value one time like flask and star versus uh spring drum and evolving wilds? I generally value flask and star lower than things that are going to reliably, uh, like repeatedly fix my mana because. I'm trying to cast a lot of cards of my different colors and not just cast a single one. Uh, so Flask and Star are definitely lower priorities. Uh, Springleaf Drum is a good one to call out. Uh, Springleaf Drum is much worse than Sentinel's Lower, but I'll play it pretty often. It's a good piece of fixing. Uh, you can, you know, cast it with any color, so you don't have to have green to get started, though usually you need to have green to cast your creature. But if you have like, a lot of combat couriers or something, then you can uh, do it without and it's, you know, artifact fall, prowess trigger type stuff, there's some value there. Springleaf Drum is a significantly bad stalwart, but a playable. I'll usually try to sell t- it. Evolving Wilds, very high priority. Doesn't star repeatedly fix with stalwart? Well, it's the stalwart that's doing the fixing. The star could be any object that you're tapping. It sounds like blue is not a likely color to be in this deck. What blue card are good enough to play here? Yeah, blue is not likely because there aren't very many commons that you want to play. Uh, Mightstones Animation is the big one that's kind of nice because you do tend to have a lot of random artifacts to put the Mightstones Animation on. And if you can reliably do that, it's a good card. So the top blue commons that I'm looking for to splash a little bit of blue are Mightstones Animation, Combat Courier, Those are like the two that I would play kind of as my only blue, but with Courier, I usually wouldn't even play an island. I would just play it off of Refractors and Stalwarts. If I have Mightstones Animation and some Evolving Wild, then I might put an island in my deck. And then once I have an island in my deck, I would also be willing to play like Stern Lesson uh, in a pinch, maybe uh, Weakstone Subjugation, but it's... Not something I'd be happy to play. And then, of course, you know, some stronger uncommons and stuff. but there are not very many commons that you want um in blue, which is why most of the time I'm four color, no blue, but sometimes there's some blue, and it's fine. Um, it doesn't fundamentally change the deck very much. uh battery bearer is in not that infrequently and stuff to your land base, commonly just look like one of each splash and nine functional forests. hopefully as many as evolving wilds as possible. when does a secondary so, I will often have like eight forests, one evolving wilds, one swamp, one plains, and then like three or four mountains or something. You know, whatever, whatever land it happens to be my second color will often have like three or four, uh, especially if I have like a double there. And then as I have additional uh, evolving wilds, you'd have fewer forests and or fewer of the secondary color thing. And, you know, if you end up, like, an even mix of, like, Green Splash everything, it's fine to be, you know, like, Forests, Evolving Wilds, and, like, two 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 or whatever. How do you rank a cheap fixing artifact? So you're talking about a cheap fixing artifact, like a cheap artifact as fodder for Stalwart. It's, like, it's really, really, really easy to have a card to tap for Stalwart. Because you can play Firebomb as just like a one-mana object to tap. You have a ton of two-drops. Um, you're going to play your, like... I value, in general, having a lot of one and two-mana cards, but I don't really think of that as, like, comparable to Fixing. Would you ever play Corrupt your Flow of Knowledge if you had two Flasks? It hasn't come up, because I value Flask a lot lower than Refractor. Uh, you see enough cards that you could play Corrupt. I don't think Flow of Knowledge is really, like, what you're looking for. I, like, I don't think I'd play Flow of Knowledge, but I could see playing a Corrupt if you had two flasks. What are the strengths and weaknesses against the Blue-White Soldier's deck? Interesting question. I mean, the weakness is that sometimes you don't have a lot of answer to flyers and they can, like, get over you. The strengths are... You generally have a more powerful deck and you're good at gumming up the ground, so their ground attackers aren't very threatening. And then it's a question about like whether they can end the game with their flyers before you take over. Uh, where your key cards there are going to be, you know, any of your cheap removal spells to answer their flyers, your life gain to avoid them bracing you, and uh ideally creatures that can block flyers. Sometimes I play uh the five slash ten mana three five slash ten ten reach trample as a way to block flyers, and then of course, the black uncommon spider is fantastic there. Yeah, mo- mostly the matchup comes down to whether they can, uh, whether you can answer their flyers in time. What are some of the wrong ways people use all They just put it in normal decks with 16 or 17 lands, and uh, you know, like not very many one and two mana cards. Uh, you, you need like really like you need to be willing to cut a lot of lands for a lot of sheep spells to make sure that you don't flood and that you have mana to and that you have object to let you actually get mana out of your stalwart immediately like i'm usually able to productively tap my, man- my stalwart for mana on turn two because i have both like a two drop and another one drop and i think that for normal decks like you're lucky if you're getting to tap it productively on turn three the first time And it's, you know, obviously, just like the more mana you're getting out of it in the early game, the faster you turn it on, the stronger it is by a lot. Also, just like playing one stalwart, just kind of like as an extra mana source, but not like playing, not leaning into it, not having a bunch of fixing and using it to like increase the power of your deck by playing color cards is another spot where it's just like, you know, Stop's not good as just a creature in like a red-green deck, for example. I mean, it might be playable sometimes depending on your curve, but you're not getting very much out of it compared to like what this deck is doing with it. How average is Clear Cutter? Below? It is below average. Uh, I I generally try not to play Clear Cutter. How high do you value Bobble and Ornithop? And how high do you value Bobble and is Ornithopter playable? Bobble's great, especially if you have plus stalwarts getting to actually cast a three mana cre- like creature on turn two is amazing i've done it once ever it was a four three trample and it was you know it felt game ending and ornithopter is playable if you have like three plus i've had i've played ornithopter when i had i think three stalwarts and a drum and a dissident and it was great there when in doubt don't play ornithopter but if you have like a lot of things like a lot of re- different reasons to play it, um, then it can be acceptable. Next question: How many Yoshin dissidents for something like Stone Retrieval Unit or Mass Production? Uh, I have not personally played Stone Retrieval Unit. It's I agree that a time when you might want to is when you have a lot of dissidents, uh, but I, I don't have a number in mind for that. Mass Production. Mass production is a weird one because it costs so much non power stone mana. I'm generally pretty skeptical about it, but I think if you have two or more dissidents, it's not unreasonable. I think that's that I'm going to uh, wrap it up there. Uh, thank you very much for the questions, everyone. Also, I understand this. I've had some issues with uh, the O being a little choppy. Um... I apologize. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, I will hope to look into it. And thanks again for listening. And I'll be back next week. Have a good week, everyone.